Welcome to Psychology.fm, the podcast about cycling culture, sport, and passion. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and we're here to put the psych back in cycling. So let's get psyched. A little bit of pain never hurt anybody, if you know what I mean. I'm talking about a glass of beer. My guest today is mountain biking pioneer Ashley Cornblack, and she has one of the coolest stories you'll ever hear in our sport. After graduating from Dartmouth Business School in the 80s, the Arkansas native did a stint on Wall Street, but found that bond trading got in the way of her passions for cycling and skiing. So she made her way back to New England and joined the startup bike company, Merlin Metalworks, as CEO. She then helped fellow Arkansan, Bill Clinton, get elected president before bailing on the East Coast altogether and relocating to Moab, Utah, where she's resided ever since. She and her husband acquired Western Spirit Cycling, and she's led the company as CEO for the past 23 years and counting. Western Spirit also started and now hosts the Outer Bike Demo event, which I had a chance to attend for the first time in Moab just recently. It was an honor to finally meet Ashley at the event, which set me up for this fantastic interview. Ashley Kornblatt, welcome to Psychology.fm. Thanks for having me. It's so exciting to have you on the show. Literally, when I started it, I made a short list of guests that I wanted, and you were on it. So this is oh, this is thanks. really cool. My first question is always, did you happen to get a ride in today? Not yet, but I still have hope. <laughs> nice. I definitely didn't because it snowed in Park City and didn't even ride indoors. So no ride for me today. But I got to say my last really, really fun ride was I drove eight Nike racers three hours so that they could pre-ride a brand new race course in Manti, Utah. And it had full-on bank turns, and it was totally pro in the middle of nowhere, Utah. And I drove five hours so that they could ride seven miles. Now, we, we did a few laps, and I was pretty worried that one of them might be missing when, you know, when the sun went down. But luckily, they all made it back to the van because we had left after school. So the whole thing was kind of a fire drill, like get in the van, hurry up, drive two and a half hours, get out of the van, ride the course as fast as you can, get back in the van, drive home. <laughs> so it's pretty Wait, crazy, where, but worth where it. Where in Utah is this? Manti, Utah. It's a Manti. little town. My God. Mm-hmm. Don't know it. It's the Manti LaSalle National Forest. It's the Manti part of that forest. And it's really in central Utah, near Mount Nebo. It's really something. So that is officially on my list now. Thank you. Yeah, my exactly. my home state, my adopted home state, that is. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start out talking about outer bike. So I was fortunate enough to come down uh, to the event in Moab where we met. For the first time, also obviously Moa being your home and headquarters for Western Spirit Cycling. It was a great time. My first time to Outer Bike. Got to demo some cool bikes. But for those who aren't familiar with the event, what is Outer Bike and how did it get started? 
So Outer Bike is a consumer demo bike event where you get to test bikes on real trails for real rides. So we've chosen locations that have great riding right from the venue, and it allows you to ride different bikes on a real trail and really start to understand what's going to work best for you. And the way we started it, I had been in the bike business forever, and I know Back in the day when it was all about interbike, you had to kind of kill yourself to build a demo fleet in time for the show. And you would pull it all together and take it to Las Vegas. And then that would be it. You were done for the winter. Like you just had this bright, shiny new fleet and nowhere else to go with it. So I thought it would be great to invite everyone over to Moab. So back when interbike was happening, I talked I don't know, 20 brands into coming over to the first outer bike and letting consumers ride the bikes. What, so what year was that? 2010? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 2010. Must have been I do remember hearing about it when it happened and thinking about that being pretty cool because, I mean, Interbike was more for industry folks, bike shop people and industry folks. It wasn't so much of a consumer show, but it sounds like outer bike, you're just kind of open to anybody who wants to sign up and come out. Sure. I wanted to make it basically a VIP tent for anyone that wants to test bikes. So we have food there that's part of the event and shuttles and to different trail systems. And there's all kinds of non-bike exhibitors that like camping gear and other outdoor stuff that's really fun to check out. And I think, you know, because the sales channels are changing Not that we're selling anything now because we don't have anything, but when we get things back, it really matters if you've gotten to see and touch something and figure out what is best for you. And I think a lot of people sort of buy whatever bike their buddy told them to buy, people that are just getting into it, especially. And I think that sometimes that really is not the best choice for them. So it's really important for people to get to ride the bikes on a real trail and make their own choice. And so like, yeah, the manufacturers, I think more in recent years have built demo fleets with demo trucks that just are kind of traveling all the time, whether it's to bike shops or events. So did that happen first and then outer bike? Or did you kind of like inspire a lot of these manufacturers to be like, all right, we're just going to make demo programming, you know, something that we do on a regular basis? Well, I think it had been discovered by several brands as a technique and a tactic really to get the word out and to build loyalty for their brand and have folks from the brand actually meeting the consumer and getting to know them a little bit and getting that feedback directly from the consumer and to support their dealers. I mean, part of it is bringing these fleets to different dealers. There's, you know, so much of that, but it is tricky because having the chance to ride two bikes back to back on the same trail is pretty rare opportunity to do that. And you can really start to tell the difference and see what makes more sense for you. I mean, everyone's body is a little bit different. And so I find that if you just buy the bike your friend bought, you might not be getting what's best for you. And also there's so many different manufacturers doing innovating all the time. That's been happening so much and the whole wheel size and everything 
that we stress about. It's so great for a consumer to make a decision and say, I really want X instead of Y. And it makes sense for me and the kind of trails I ride at home. And this is really going to be the best bike for me. So that was the real need that we were trying to meet. And I'm not sure how, which evolved first. And I think seeing demo bikes at the dealer or at a race or whatever is great. We just wanted to make sure that you really got to go on a great ride on the bike. Yeah. I mean, it was really well organized in Moab. So like, you know, it was at Moab Brands trailhead and that's where the event took place and then like the first day we went out to navajo rocks and then the second day we did mag 7 which got you know a little bit more descending you know kind of net descending anyway it was a nice shuttle and i actually had to go home after that what did you guys do on the third day on the third day we go over to a And for those that are ready for it, Captain Ahab is over there. But there's also some other great riding, but it is definitely more techie, but really fun. And so that some folks, you know, the riding right at the Moab Brands is great too. And so for some people, Sunday turns into, all right, I'm taking out, you know, I've ridden 10 bikes. I'm going to take out my two favorite on the brand trails at the Bar M and see which one it's going to be. We ended up going to Amasa back on the first day because I knew I wasn't going to be there on Sunday. So we did, we ended up doing the Navo Rocks in the morning, then went out and did Captain Ahab for my first time. And it was just awesome. It was so amazing. I was just like blown away by just how challenging it is. We just don't get anything close to that in Park City. And just actually wrote a, a story for Forbes about this test bike with the flight attendant. See the RockShock flight attendant that came out? Yeah. I just had that when I was in Moab and it's like a 170 millimeter bike. It's on the specialized Enduro LTD. So it worked out great that I was able to actually bring that down to outer bike. I kind of brought my own demo bike. <laughs> but being able to ride Captain Ahab on that bike with that new technology, oh my God, it was phenomenal. I'm glad I was able to check that off the list. And really just, I got a ridden Moab, like kind of, bits and pieces, but like to go down there and be there for two straight days of riding, I feel like I have a much better command of all the different areas. But I guess you also don't do whole enchilada shuttle for, for Well, the, the thing is, because everybody is anxious to ride every bike, it's bad if the bikes are tied up. You know, it's an hour from the Bar M, it's an hour and a half to the top of Borough Pass or to the top of Geyser Pass. And then some people will not get back till maybe after dinner if they're riding the whole enchilada. Exactly. But was, we have helped organize folks. About that. <laughs> yeah. We have helped organize folks do it the day before Outer Bike starts. Ah, there you go. Very yeah. nice. Mm-hmm. What was the situation with this year's bike availability? I guess it was maybe about a fifth the size that it would usually be because there just wasn't bikes available. Yeah. We were jokingly calling it Outer Bikes. <laughs> we um, <laughs> That's great. We, we knew that there weren't going to be many and it was going to be very tricky. And so we had to really limit the sales of all demos, you know, full demo passes. Because when we do this at every outer bike, calibrate the number of people to the number of bikes to make sure that everyone's going to get their chance to ride what they want to ride. But yeah, we definitely had to limit it, pull it way back. And we thought about not doing, but so many people wanted to come. And we thought, all right, let's just go for it. We can do it. It'll keep us in practice. We'll learn a few things. And 
be able to, you know, support those companies that do have inventory and can sell stuff and are ready to go to keep that going. Because you know, everyone's asking if the boom is going to continue, if we're going to continue to sell bikes. And we think the answer is yes, because at Western Spirit for our multi-day trips, you know, it averages about 67% of the people come back the next year. I mean, if you start riding, you know, you may not ride every day, whatever, but if biking becomes part of your life, it's likely to stay that way unless you do something crazy like have children <laughs> or other big life sort of interrupting That cut moments. into my but, riding at the time, for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it takes a minute there, but mostly people do keep riding. So we really wanted to do it, even though we knew it was going to be small because we knew there were lots of people that wanted to attend and several brands that had sort of pulled it together. So- so when is the next outer bike? 20 minutes. No, it is <laughs> It is not this coming weekend, but the weekend after. So we go to Bentonville the 21st and the outer bike is the 22nd through the 24th in Arkansas. Is that the final one of the year? Yeah. 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 No Tucson outer bike? Oh, we're talking about it. Believe me. Let's do a Tucson outer bike. I will be there. I will be there. Yeah. I, that's where I went to school and that's, yeah. I love Tucson. <laughs> yeah, there's some it's great, great in January. <laughs> great spots down there that we are thinking about. Well, let's go back to the beginning. You know, like I said earlier, the reason you were on my shortlist for this podcast is because you've had such a huge impact on the sport of mountain biking. And I'm not sure that enough people fully appreciate that. So in part, I'm trying to fix that. You know, I think when I was at Bike Magazine, you know, starting in 1997, I started as an intern. And I recall when we featured you as, you know, one of the most influential people in mountain biking. I forget exactly what the headline was, but it's also possible that I actually wrote your blurb back then. <laughs> so I've known who you were, you know, since that time and we had never had met. And then the most surreal thing when like you called me as we were planning to come down for Outer Bike. And you're like, hey, Rob, it's Ashley. And I'm like, <laughs> Ashley Kornblatt? Like, I would have been less surprised if Kamala Harris had called me. Like, oh. it, it was, I was like, this is awesome. I'm like talking to a celebrity uh, right so now. You're so nice. This is amazing. So I'm so glad that we got here. So now everybody is going to learn the full story. So let's start at the beginning. How did you discover cycling and the bike industry? Take us back to the beginning. Wow. I went to Dartmouth and ski raced. And I was really lucky there because they had a big program and they had to spend as much money on the women as they did on the men. Title and nine. so yeah, even right? though I'm from Arkansas, I really got taken under their wing and had a bunch of mentors and really got to learn how to ski. And with there were a bunch of people on the U.S. ski team that were there. And it was great experience for me. And of course, my husband would not have married me if I hadn't been able to keep up in Crested Butte. So that ended up being a good investment. But I left Dartmouth and went to business school there. And after business school, went to Wall Street. And I spent every weekend dragging my road bike or my mountain bike or my skis out of the city. And it quickly became clear that that probably wasn't the best spot for me. And one thing led to another, and I 
got a job running a factory that made women's belts in Concord, Massachusetts. And I was the assistant general manager. I had the, the couple that started it, started it around their kitchen table. They were both teachers and they got to 25 million in sales and 250 employees. And they said, we're going to hire an MBA. And if you don't want the job, we're going to start interviewing your friends. And I just saw it as a way to sort of get out of New York and the bond market, which I was always more of an entrepreneur than a bond trader anyway. So I learned about manufacturing, which turned out to be really important because then I met the guy who founded Merlin and he was looking for someone to run it. And I remember that when I first started to take inventory of how many, uh, how much tubing we had, we had about four employees and I was walking around with this piece of paper trying to figure out how much tubing we had and they all said, oh, are you going to Dunkin' Donuts? I'll have a coffee and a <laughs> – and I was awesome. like – and, you know, we grew really quickly at Merlin and we had a lot of fun. And we eventually had a bike that was totally matte black painted with pink Dunkin' Donut grips. And every time we hired someone new, they had to be the person who went to Dunkin' Donuts. They went twice a day. I mean, they knew exactly what time the different donuts came out of the oven. We started racing then. Like we would go to the races in New England every weekend and and then So this was bikes. this was like you, you joined Merlin in eighty nine, was it? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I was twenty seven. You joined a CEO. I joined a CEO. That the, was your first founder, your first job at Merlin was my first job. Well CEO. the founder <laughs> he didn't know that this was really gonna go anywhere and he his wife was getting her PhD and he had promised he would help with their kids. And he was kind of overcommitted. And he was like, here's 40% of the company. Don't lose money and good luck. You know? Yeah. It was pretty wild ride because I remember when Eddie B called and wanted bikes and I'm like, well, what's your last name? <laughs> and he's like, nobody has my last name, <laughs> but, um, but we became good friends. I mean, we worked so hard to get them the bikes that they needed. And Lance was on the team at that point. And, and I remember driving around in this giant Chevy van that said Subaru all over it for the Subaru Montgomery team and going to some of those road races. And, and at the same time, I was racing mountain biking in that whole New England series with Tomac. And my claim to fame in that is I beat Missy Giovi in a dual slalom once. That's that was awesome. Pretty yeah, much the height of my the, racing yes. career. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it that was is, really that fun. That is worth and, mentioning for sure. Yeah, there we go. To this audience because they know who she was, is. So. Yes. Yeah, we do. So, I mean, that, that was like such – I mean, the, the, the industry, the mountain bike business was just nascent at that point. Like, what was it like? Did you have a sense for – kind of the the moment in history that you were experiencing, like before it was history? Yes. In some ways, yes. Because there were some races where there were, you know, 600 people racing and it was really just taking off. And we were, you know, there were many weeks when we got three times as many orders as we could ship. I mean, we were interviewing welders, like we wouldn't even ask their name. It'd be like, lay a bead. Okay, next. Or then when one, then one, when one was good, it was okay. Now what's your name? (laughs) Like we were, it was crazy. And, you know, we made bikes for Greg Lamont's team as well. And, uh, all kinds of crazy things happened. They, uh, 
you know, they really wanted to add Merlin bikes to the Le Mans lineup and we were trying to work that out. And I remember. But the, know, bike, the bike said Greg Le Mans on him though. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. yeah. It <laughs> was were. when he was racing for the Z team at, at that point. Yeah. And so they wanted me to come to the race that at one time was called the Tour de Trump. Remember that? Of course. And, yeah. yeah. And they were like, let's negotiate, you know, let's figure this out. And I said, well, won't you be busy <laughs> racing? And they said, you know, we can talk after the races. And so I, I was actually hanging out with the Subaru Montgomery team because that was the team that we sponsored. And then, and I didn't want to just sit around in the VIP tent. So I worked with the Soigniers and got all the, you know, stayed up late making flat Coke and packing special sandwiches for everyone and doing, standing in the middle of the road with, you know, a hundred guys coming at you at 30 miles an hour. That was pretty exciting. So I got a lot of great, you know, had some amazing experiences and it was really a fun ride and people just loved the bikes. And at that time, carbon fiber didn't, quite have its act together. And so titanium was really, you know, the best material. So I felt really lucky to be there. And it was a great group of people. And, and we got to ride a ton and worked a ton. And it was really fun. From I've said this a number of times, kind of like, you know, from my experience, you know, the, the, the period from 1990 to 1994, I feel like really was like the heyday of mountain biking. And I, and I pretty much bookend that period with like the worlds in Durango, which kind of created the first mountain biking stars with, with Ned and, and Missy and, you know, that kind of whole generation. And then it was just an amazing time from then until about 1994 when I don't know why I pick on team Volvo Cannondale so much, but like, when that happened and they got like, you know, a car sponsor and this huge budget and they just mopped up all the talent, it was almost like, okay, like we're going from the, this is a really cool secret that we're all in on to like, you know, Olympic sport and it's in mainstream advertising. Like talk to me about like, did, do you kind of feel the same thing? Like during that time, do you have any kind of moments to share in there? Well, it definitely was really special. And I, you know, my goal was not to get lapped in a criterium by Sarah Ballantyne, right? Like, and uh, I got to do a camp one time with Susan DiMatte. It was amazing. And like, we were both coaching together and had so much fun. And so I, it definitely felt like that heyday. And I definitely know what you mean, but I got to say right now, like what's happening with NICA, especially in Utah is amazing because like when I moved to Utah after that whole time period and came out to Utah, I was kind of a freak, like as a mountain biker. I mean, there were mountain bikers in Moab, but, but we were freaks, right? I mean, and now you should see these races. There are six or seven high schools in Utah that have over 200 kids on their mountain bike racing team. And there are something like, that's crazy. Yeah. In high school. And there, I mean, we have four divisions and we're going to six divisions, six, sorry, six regions in Utah now, six regions, because the races are too huge. There's 1500 kids. There's over 6,000 kids mountain bike racing in Utah now. And what's so great is the parents are riding too. And so like there was this one daughter and dad who were doing a practice loop, you know, and they took their pre-race lap and, and the daughter was like, let's go around again. And the dad was, who had all brand new stuff on was clearly just getting used to it, you know? And he's like, okay, 
I just need a drink of water first. (laughs) (laughs) And so like to me that pulling it into the mainstream, like mountain biking is mainstream for these little rural communities and it's bringing all this revenue to them. And it's folks that, you know, when we were like that niche, you know, that was fun and that was cool. But what I'm seeing right now about how it is just all kinds of people riding all kinds of bikes, but you know, the mainstream aspect of it. And the fact that so many cities and towns now, you know, it used to be if you were the mayor, you were like in charge of police and fire and water, I guess, right? And now you're in charge of police, fire, water, and trails. And all of these cities and towns are all about, you know, building trails. So I do look back at that whole time period fondly, and it is kind of weird, all the strange changes that have happened. But this moment we're in now where the where there are so many high school mountain bikers has really, really been fun. Well, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's that's why I moved from Los Angeles to Park City, because they've got 450 miles of single track. That was my number one reason privately. I've got a whole bunch of other reasons that I'm more public about. But, you know, that was, that was my selfish reason, let's just say. Sure. It is like, yeah, the, the era, the time that we're living in right now for mountain biking, I'm just immensely thankful that I can still do it at the level that I do it, which is amazing. But it is, it's interesting how you like, you just like put your advocacy hat on, you know, like right there. And it was like a perfect segue to like my next question <laughs> because like, you can't talk to Ashley Kornblatt without like, you know, the fervent advocate coming out, right? Like, so <laughs> this is iconic photo of you riding with Bill Clinton, which uh, I believe that was during the 1992 presidential campaign. So yeah. what's the full story behind that photo? How'd you end up going for a bike ride with the future president of the United States right in that moment? Well, so I'm from Arkansas, and it's a very small state, and I had known both Governor at the time, Clinton, and Hillary growing up. So when Clinton announced that he was going to run for president, I called Little Rock and said, what can I do to help? And they said, raise $1,000 by Friday. And I was like, okay. So I got 10 people to give me 100 bucks, and I went to this event, and I met, and Clinton was there, and he's like, you're Art Kornblatt's daughter from Little Rock. What are you doing in Boston? And I said, I'm running this little bike factory and we're making bikes. And he was like, that's great. And either Bill or Hillary came to Boston every three weeks, starting in 91, right up to the election in 92, basically for fundraising. And so we did a lot of events And that was the last, we had this huge event. It was the big crescendo. It was right before the election. And I had been at the show, which would have been in Anaheim, maybe then, or Vegas. I'm not sure what what year that happened. And so I flew back to Boston on the red eye and I never really sleep on the plane. You know, I'm just reading or doing stuff or whatever. So we had this huge fundraiser and we, and we had to, they had oversold it. So we were cramming people into it. And I was in charge of logistics. So I was supposed to turn the tables from 10 people to 12. And there was a big, there was a cocktail party before, and there were people lined up all the way around the block. And Clinton, of course, arrived early. And I looked up and he was there. And I said, 
oh my gosh, you're early. You never come early. This is terrible. And, <laughs> and <laughs> but we managed to get more volunteers so we could process the people who were trying to donate and we got them all in. And then we went over to the building where the dinner was. But before this is when Congressman Kennedy, who Joe Kennedy, who was really the bike champion in Congress at that time, his office had contacted me and said, can you help us organize a bike ride for Governor Clinton when he's here? And I had said, sure, you know, whatever, whenever. And I didn't really think it was going to happen. And then I hadn't heard from them. And and then I heard it was canceled. So when I was running around dealing with the dinner, I was kind of relieved because there were so many other problems that had to be solved. And then we finally get everyone into the room. It is overflowing. I mean, there were people sitting at this table and the volunteers were like, come here, come here. You got to come help us. These people from New Hampshire are sitting at this table that was meant for these people from Maine. And uh, we need to get another table from the people for the people from Maine. And I said, you know, it's not really about eating dinner anymore. And the people from Maine can use the salad forks and the people from New Hampshire can use the regular forks and they can just share. It'll be fine. And people were, you know, I'll give you $5,000 if you can get me a seat. Like, literally. And I said, you know, I can't take $5,000. We can only take $2,000 and I can't get you a seat, but I can get you in the room. And so at this point, you know, everybody wanted to meet Bill Clinton. It was wild. And right around the mess of this, I get this message that the bike ride is on, that they want us to meet at 630 in the morning. And we're supposed to And I need to bring six bikes for the Secret Service, plus a bike for Robert Kennedy, a bike for Clinton, and a bike for me. And I had been awake for almost three days at this point. And so at the end of this huge fundraiser, everyone's so excited. We raised all this money. They're like, we're going partying. And I was afraid if I went home, I would sit down and be asleep and really mess everything up. So I had to I started calling all the welders and everyone who worked at Merlin because we didn't have a big stash of built bikes. I had to use employee bikes. So I got um, a bunch of employees to meet me at 6 a.m. at the hotel where Clinton was. And we scrambled around to, to get the right bikes for the right size Secret Service people. And Clinton, when I went and met him and he said, Ashley, I don't have any bike riding clothes. And I'm like, it is okay. You can go in jeans and sneakers. It will be fine. Of course, the bike that fit him um, had toe clips, like old style toe clips on it. And I was super worried that he you know, put his leg over the bike and he looked at the pedal and he was like, what do I do with that thing? And I was like, oh, just ignore it. And so I was worried that, you know, every pedal stroke, it was going to scrape on the pavement, right? Mercifully, the bottom bracket was high enough. That did not happen. And so all the scrambling around and all of a sudden we're out there riding along. It's beautiful sunrise. No one's around. They close the streets. The Secret Service is in front of us and behind us. And, and Clinton says, wow, what a nice way to start the day. Oh, <laughs> that's like, perfect. Exactly. Yeah, it was really awesome. But Yeah, the press was definitely like, okay, we know who the congressman is. We know who the candidate is for president. Who is that woman? (laughs) They were just like, why is she there? But he asked me a lot of questions about Merlin, and I told him how it's going and what we were doing and manufacturing right there in Massachusetts, and it was a great chat. So, But the only bad thing that happened on that whole time period is I had gotten a helmet for Clinton. I assumed that Joe Kennedy would bring his own and I had my helmet, 
But the helmet I borrowed for Clinton, I put on the roof of my car and drove off. <laughs> because I'd been awake for three days, Because you'd been awake right? for three days. Yeah. yeah. And so I get there and I am faced with this moral dilemma, right? Before the toe clip problem even. I was like, do I wear my helmet? And then Joe Kennedy didn't have a helmet. And I was like, wait. What is worse, me to wear my helmet and them not to be wearing helmets? Would that make it more obvious or if I didn't? And I decided not to. And I don't know. I got a lot of emails about that. I bet. Yeah, nobody was wearing a helmet, right? Like, yeah, nobody was yeah, wearing a helmet. You went with no helmets. <laughs> where did that get picked up? Like, where did it initially get published? Do you recall? The Boston Globe and, yeah, the Boston Papers and maybe some New York Papers. But it was so close to the election and he was so popular then that, you know, it was it was the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. He had had it in the bag at that point pretty much, right? Yeah. 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 So. Nice. Well, and, and that seems to, you know, kind of dovetail with your involvement and kind of going more into the advocacy aspect of mountain biking and your career. Is that accurate? Was that right around the time where you started to get involved with IMBA? Sure. I served as the chair of IMBA during those years. And, you know, it was when IMBA had very little money in the bank and we tried to hire an executive director. And when he found out we only had $16,000 in the bank, he didn't take the job. And then Tim Blumenthal, who at the time had the dream job at bicycling, he, you know, from lots of people's perspective, oh, yeah, quit that's right. and yeah. became the executive director of IMBA. So we had, that was great because IMBA grew really, really quickly. And, and we were traveling, we were doing board me meetings all over the country. And I really learned a lot about every different community and the clubs, the local clubs and all the cool things that they were doing. And, and I got a lot of two big t-shirts because every club gave me their t-shirt and it was always like a men's medium or something. <laughs> and um, so I had a big collection of t-shirts, but it was really important to see how mountain biking was really community driven. You had these motivated clubs that had great leadership that were working with local land managers to show that mountain biking would be an asset. And really, you know, sometimes people get a little confused and they think we have to fight for our rights. And the problem is that there is no right to ride your bike on any piece of public land anywhere, anytime. I have checked. It is not in the Constitution. So instead, you know, we have had to prove the value of our constituency, that having mountain bikers as part of your visitors on any piece of public land, whether it's state, county, federal or whatever, is a good thing. And that is really how we've won. And so I really have worked hard to to make us be the player that everyone wants, as opposed to another whiny user group that's demanding something from the land managers. So, I mean, what were some of the big wins back at, at that time? Because, I mean, I remember it being, you know, pretty vital to just the viability of our sport at that time, like in, in the 90s. You know, I mean, IMBA, was, we, we all celebrated what IMBA was doing, and I don't know we that we would have succeeded without it. Were there some big moments? I think the two, probably the two most important moments, the, one of them was when we started really fundraising. Linda Dupriest, who was a specialist at the time, she and I went and terrorized everyone at the bike show. And people would say, well, you know, we were just like, no trails, no sales. You need to pay up. We need to get serious and get organized about how we're protecting the trails and building more. And, uh, 
And people would be like, well, how about we give you a few cases of water bottles? And we were like, no, hard, cold cash is what we're going to need. And so that was really important. And I remember we got a really big donation um, from Rock Shocks, actually. And they said, how much, what's the most anyone's ever given in but And specialized in track and everyone had been really helpful, you know, on all kinds of things. But I, I was like racking my brain to figure out how big a number. And I think I said 50,000. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll get you 50,000. And I was, I couldn't dial the phone fast enough to tell Tim Blumenthal that I got this huge donation, you know? So there were lots of really important moments with the industry. And then, you know, the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, there was a really important person there, Bob Moore and others, who saw that this was a great user group, that this was going to bring more people to public land and really change the public land equation in terms of, you know, up until that time, and still in many ways, public land there was, was mostly for resource extraction. Like we took trees off the forest and we took oil and gas off the Bureau of Land Management lands and ran cows out there. And that was what it was for. And so this idea that you could making a living off the land had a new meaning that mountain bikers would build trail and, and bring people to communities and bring money to those communities. And the idea that land in its natural state is an economic driver was pretty new concept. And there were some key people at the BLM who saw that and eventually the Forest Service as well. But that was a really important turning point because, you know, through skiing, skiing had been through a similar epiphany in terms of in Aspen, right? And in Jackson Hole, the trees are worth more standing up than they would be laying down, right? And the idea that you should keep them up and that's going to be the future of your community was relatively new and mountain biking really helped with that. And when you see what communities are doing now to bring quality of life to their community, it's all about building trail. And that combined with the growth in remote working is really going to change the prospects of a lot of the rural West and other parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to get crazy. I don't think we really can fully appreciate the social impact of the work from home trend, which is, you know, here to stay. We've certainly felt it in Park City. <laughs> a lot of second homes up here became first homes, you know, through the pandemic and and our our trails are have felt it, you know, we got to build more, you know, just to accommodate it. Has the IMBA mandate evolved and changed over the years? Because, you know, I mean, you've got the BLM on board, you got the National Forest on board, we're never getting the national parks on board. Which is kind of okay, really. They're so crowded right now. Holy yeah, mackerel. Exactly. We're, we're good problem. with that. There was a time when we kind of like, you know, I think I longed to be able to ride in national parks before they were crowded, I guess. But yeah, like well, now we, may, we've got there, this. There's still hope that bikes will be part of the transportation solution in national parks. So there is there is work happening in that direction, but it won't be, you know, it won't be single track trails like we're purpose built. The parks are just too small. Really, yeah, nobody needs, nobody needs to be mountain biking on the Bright Angel Trail. Like, <laughs> yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> it's like, well, there's a few, bad. only a few of us who could, so that's okay. Yeah. So, so, but now it seems like, you know, I mean, it seems like maybe to a casual observer, the job is done. Like, we've got all this great access. Trails are being built everywhere. Like, you know, what's Imba's role today? Well, we do own the 18 inches of dirt that is the trail. 
we are the worldwide expert on berms and that building trail, that 18 inches, we own it. However, it is time to lift up our heads and look around at the lands that we are building those trails on, which we sort of take for granted, and start to understand the threats that those are under, the real threats. So right now, we estimate there's about 100,000 miles of ready-to-ride trail in the U.S., And honestly, from the work that we're doing through the nonprofit I work with, Public Land Solutions, that that is helping communities pivot from oil and gas and coal to recreation, we are seriously poised to build another 100,000 miles. And just as a quick aside, you might ask, well, how many of those miles might be threatened by wilderness or have anything to do with wilderness? And the answer is like less than 2%. So is wilderness our challenge? I'm going to say no. And not only that, you know, at the time of climate change, would you really want to be against the founding legislation of the modern environmental movement? Probably not a good time to do that. But there is a real need to get involved in public land management in general and not just focusing on the trails. For example, methane. Methane is uh, 25% of the climate changing gases and one of the worst ones. And it comes mostly from oil and gas development and other sources. Okay, cows are a little bit part of it. But if we don't control methane, if we don't get involved in working on clean air as mountain bikers, it's going to be a problem because there was a moment when EMBA was super narrowly focused and I had asked them to start working on a clean air campaign. And they were like, well, you know, all the mountain bikers, they gave us money to work on the trails. We can't work on on the clean air. And at the time I was like, okay, but you know what? It turns out that you need clean air to ride a bike. So funny how that works. So we're at a moment where it's time for us to get involved in the climate conversation in energy um, transition and how all of those things affect public lands because Without public lands, there is no mountain biking, but nobody wants to ride through an industrial site. And the pressure on the public lands is going to continue to grow as population grows. So we really need to be a lot more involved in public lands. And EMBA is starting to do that for sure. There are, you know, quite a few groups that work in this space on public lands and environment. Obviously, there's millions of them, but we have the opportunity to be a special kind of player in that conversation because we do bring economic development. So that piece of that if you build trails and mountain bikers come to your town and now those lands that used to be only good for oil and gas or cows are now good for mountain bike trails is really pivotal in starting to help this transition away from bad energy sources and provide other reasons for folks to live in these communities with access to to public land. It would seem like you have a tremendous amount of credibility in talking about this because you were a big part of doing that for Moab, right? And (laughs) I mean, well, (laughs) you and and Western Spirit, and that's the story of Moab, right? Of being converted from, it was mostly like uranium mining, right? Uranium, yeah. Yeah. And now it's like, it's the Mecca of mountain biking. Yeah. 
I wasn't here when the first that first started, but I definitely saw it happen. And I think another place where this has happened is Fruta. There are more and more communities now. The coolest one that I have been hearing about lately is Old Fort in North Carolina, where Kitspo has moved to, and they are building trails. And there's a ton of great stuff going on in West Virginia. I mean, Natarita, Colorado is going to build trails. Um, Farmington, New Mexico, like more and more places are are taking that moment and pivoting from resource extraction to recreation. So it's definitely, we've learned a lot from Moab. Moab has, you know, there's a lot of things we did wrong in Moab, (laughs) like possibly not expanding the sewer system in time, just one thing that we probably should have done. So there's definitely a lot to learn and, and just about zoning inside the community, like, you know, does, should everybody have Airbnbs in every neighborhood? You know, do we want big hotels? I mean, right now we have too many beds and not enough tables and chairs. Like there were, there were moments when they weren't letting people in city market until other people came out. Like that's, (laughs) it's, it's really, it's pretty nuts. So, but there is an opportunity to benefit from mountain biking the way Moab has, but also sort of maintain the character of your community and and that type of thing. It, it doesn't have to be quite as crazy as the growth spurt that Moab has been on. But we were very resilient during the pandemic. And pe- people were here, you know, there was the shutdown moment when everyone shut down, but then the minute it opened again, Moab did really well. And, and you know, that demand for nature, pretty universal and probably not ever going away. So a good thing to invest around. Let's talk about Western Spirit and, you know, kind of what was the transition from, you know, being the CEO Merlin and then deciding, you know what, I'm going to go to Moab and, and start a mountain bike outfitter. Connect those dots for us. Well, when I first came to Moab, my parents, they were like, we don't know what she's doing. We think she's on sabbatical. Like they couldn't figure it out. And I really wasn't sure either. We had sold Merlin to Saucony at that point, which was interesting because they were looking at, you know, providing everything for the triathlete. And I talked to lots of folks about working at different companies and came out here and, and met the founders of Western Spirit. And for him, a day in the office was a bad day. <laughs> and so he wasn't interested in the business aspect of it. So I was able, I met all the guides and, you know, was looking at different things. We also looked at making wheelchairs with out of titanium and and starting a new company to do that. And, but it turned out that outfitting really, when you get to spend a lot of time camping and riding, there's really no, no job that's going to beat that. And so I was able to buy the company and I met my husband around that time. And we spent a lot of time working on new trips. We had a lot of customers that were coming on a trip and then coming the next year to a different place. And so we rode in every national forest, almost in the West. I mean, there's really only like two or three that we haven't been in. And we were working on five day trips. And my mother was, when I would call my parents, my mom would say, are you sleeping on the ground again? 
And it was like, yes, yes, we are. It's fine. So that was really fun. And the Western Spirit customers are amazing, you know, like they arrive and they're sort of a little nervous, like what have they gotten into? And and, and there's always that worry in our sport, like, am I going to be too slow? Am I going to be too fast? Am I going to have to wait for everyone? Like, how's that going to work out? And, you know, by the second day of the trip, no one really cares about that anymore. And you're just riding as a group. And if someone's usually off the front, that's fine. And, and you have that camaraderie that comes with riding and, you know, by the time they come back from the trip, they're pretty much glowing. And it's not just the dirt or the sunburn. They actually have like gotten to, you know, check out. And now more than ever, it's so great to be on a trip and not have to think or answer any email. And you really, you know, you kind of forget about your phone after like this middle of the second day. It's like, whatever, you know, I mean, you use it to take photos and that's it because you don't care. So that is a real gift to be able to have that time where you're not connected and you're living in the moment and you do it in a beautiful place. And so it's, I feel really lucky and we have an amazing group of guides and they crush it day in and day out. And um, no matter what, they are problem solvers. Like you just, any problem that comes up, they have a great ability to solve it. And I especially love the young women who come and guide who start out really tentative. And after, you know, even halfway through their first season, they're driving the giant trucks. They're like, I can put the chains on by myself. No problem. Like they're amazing. So they turn into regular badasses. It's awesome. And so it's, and, and to see what some of our guide alumni have been able to do, like one is a doctor, they've started their own businesses. They do, um, they've gone to work with, for clients that they met on the trips. Like there's a lot of great stories of what the alumni have been able to do. Um, yeah. The, I mean, my first entrepreneurial venture was was actually a mountain bike outfitter in Tucson. So it was called Arizona Off-Road Adventures. And that's what I did before going to Bike Magazine. And we did multi-day trips, but, you know, the the day trips for like the, the golf and tennis resorts was kind of the, the bread and butter right there in Tucson. And it's just amazing the the skills that you develop as a mountain bike guide. You know, there are definitely skills I've applied throughout my career it's like, like you said, problem solving, leadership in general, just, you know, being able to group dynamics, de- group dynamics, like, you know, kind of assessing personality types and kind of knowing what, you know, one guest needs versus the other. One might need encouragement. One might need shaming. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> whatever's going to motivate them to, you know, get the best out of them. So yeah, I can, I can certainly relate. It was a, it was an amazing time. And always, you know, kind of looked up to Western Spirit as a pioneer in that industry, for sure. What were some of those like first early trips where they just, you know, kind of just right out your back door in in Utah? Well, the White Rim in Utah was definitely, and that's a classic trip that everyone should do. It's really amazing in Canyonlands National Park and it's double track, but it's got some plenty of good challenges. Like, if you ride them, you're the hero. There's a couple of really gnarly spots. And if you walk them and you're in, you're in good company kind of thing. Yeah. There. But, um, <laughs> nice. but that's a classic. And But we also had some trips in Idaho. We have this trip we call the Sun Valley single track. That's really, really fun. And just great climbs, really, you know, hard, long, but you get to the top and it's amazing. And then you have these super long descents that are really, really fun. So those two were both trips that were part of it at the beginning. And then we've just been adding 
you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington, Oregon, some in Northern California more. And we do the range is we have family trips where we take little kids and really, um, fun that we do some short ride that they can do in the morning and then the parents can do more of a real ride in the afternoon but it's pretty pretty great to be out there with your kids and have a emt doing the dishes so that you don't have to worry about anything and then and then we have you know five days above ten thousand feet on the colorado trail that's you know we're packing the camelbacks the night before like you you have to be ready to go first thing because you need to get over Indian Trail Ridge before the lightning starts. So that's some high <laughs> drama. But and and everything in between, you know, and each place is really unique. And everyone always asks me, like, what is your favorite trip? Yeah. And I say the one I'm going on next. Not, like yeah, you know, they're answer. all they're all it's just about almost half the time it doesn't even matter where you're going. It just matters that you're out there for five days with nothing to do but ride and eat, you know, eat and ride your bike and eat some more. So so what's next for you and, and Western Spirit? Just, you know, just kind of running the running outer bike, running Western Spirit. And, you know, you've pretty much found your happy place. Well, we uh, well, there's always change. You think you've seen everything. And I mean, it never fails to deliver interesting conundrums of various types. But um, what is happening right now is we have a lot of new clients who are just getting started and we need some more easier trips like we need some more intro like trips. And, you know, I think, I don't know if I mentioned like, a, like the result. You, of, is it, are you referring to kind of like the result of the bike boom? Like, like yeah. everybody's coming to the oh, sport. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And so we are scrambling around pulling together some trips with some rail trails in them and some really mellow single track. And we need an entry level trip below the entry level trips that we had. But, you know, I think that the bike industry, when you look at skiing, right. If you ski one week a year, you call yourself a skier. You're proud to call yourself a skier. The ski industry calls yourself a skier. You're a skier. In biking, if we've been off the bike two weeks, we're afraid to call ourselves a cyclist. Yeah. And <laughs> I really want to change that. I think it's time for us to welcome all these super casual cyclists who just want to go for a little spin that you know, might not even count as a ride on uh, Strava. So, but, but it's okay. They're still riding and they're enjoying it. And so I think that I really want to help us be as welcoming as we can be to these folks and add them to the mix. And they'll, you know, some of them will turn into core cyclists, but some of them won't and that's okay. So we're looking at making outer bike more open and, and lowering the price point so that not every bike is $5,000, you know, trying to go a little lower and get more folks that are more casual cyclists involved in outer bike and, and the same for Western Spirit. I mean, they are showing up and we've had a few, few trips where the guides were like, sort of like, whoa, this person was expecting something a lot easier. So we're going to figure it out and deliver that to them and bring them into the family more gently is <laughs> the goal. Yeah. Oh, that's so. great. That sounds like some good problems to have. Yeah. Right? Definitely. Yeah. So. Well, Ashley Kornblatt, this has been a true pleasure. So glad we got to chat and look forward to seeing you again down in Moab soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology.fm podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did, 
please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at psychology.fm. That's C-Y-C-O-L-O-G-Y dot F-M, where we'll provide exclusive content about bikes, gear, trends, and upcoming episodes. Music.